Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and as such, we're going to light the first candle here, the, the candle of hope. And over these next four weeks, we are going to be uh, lighting these candles to be reminded of the person of Jesus Christ. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different as we gather. In fact, the flow of the service is going to be a little bit different than our normal flow, because what we're going to do is uh, we are going to be interspersing the uh, music throughout the morning here, throughout the sermon. So what's going to happen is I'm going to talk a little bit about this candle here in just a second, and then I'm going to set up the sermon, the, the passage we will be studying this morning. After that, after I've set it up and we've kind of talked through the passage of what we're going to talk about, we'll sing. And, and uh, at that point, if you're worried about child care, that's when we'll dismiss the children who are going off to child care. And then after we sing, I'm going to talk a little bit more and we're going to sing again and then we'll talk a little bit more and we'll sing again. And the reason why I want to do this is because I want to make sure that as we engage these truths that we have a chance to reflect and respond as we're going through it together. And I want to make sure that we can really let these truths embed within us. You know, I was thinking about this because when the Advent candle started um, many, many, many years ago, it was started as a way of teaching doctrine to the church, to a, a fairly illiterate church. How do you teach the Incarnation in a, in a venue where you don't have a Bible, uh, it's not readily available. It's before there's a printing press and before everyone has them in their home. And how do you do it? Even if people did have scriptures in their home, they can't read. So how do you teach these great truths? How do you, how do you show somebody the greatness of Jesus? And so different traditions begin in such a way of reflecting on the glory of Christ. And one of them is the Advent candles. Very simple thing. There's five candles here. Each candle, each of the outside candles, just represents a certain element of the coming of Jesus. Advent means coming. And so what it's saying is, when Jesus came into the world, we're not just celebrating the birthday of a great leader. We're actually celebrating the coming hope and the coming of all of the fulfillment of all the promises that God made. That He's our hope, and that's the first candle we light. That He's our, he's our peace. That He comes and makes peace between us and God. That He's our joy. That this is where we're to find joy and fulfillment in life. And that He's love Himself. And all four of these outside candles represent the element of, of reminding us when we see the light of the world that has come. He's come to be our hope and our peace and our joy and our love. And the center candle is Christ Himself who's all of these things. And so we light this first candle, the hope. You know, it's interesting... Throughout the Old Testament, you can just look up in a concordance, hope. And you can find that word all scattered throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah is writing to people who are under major oppression. And he's saying to these people, listen, God is our hope. He says in Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, he calls God the hope of Israel. He's the one that will solve all of these problems. Matt read a passage of Scripture. When, when, the, when the promised one comes, he's going to resolve the political problems, the spiritual problems, the social problems. He's going to bring resolution to it all. And when we, we light this candle of hope, what we're saying is, yes, Jesus, we hope in you in that. This is our hope. We hope that you are the one that is going to resolve everything and give meaning and purpose to this world. And so when you see that candle lit, 
reflect on the fact that there's no greater hope to have than Jesus in the world. And we need to reflect on that truth. And that's what we're going to do actually through this whole Advent season. These four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to be focusing on who is Jesus. In fact, if you saw the handout that we passed out, the series title is called, Who is He in Yonder Stall? Who is this one who came? We're going to study the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to study the person of Jesus Christ for a very important reason. For two reasons. For worship and for witness. So that our worship would be sweet and, 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 and incredible and powerful. And that our witness would be strong in the world. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I remember one time many years ago, young kid, I was working in a store, and the owner of the store knew I was a Christian, and, and he was a New Age Christian scientist. And so he came up to me and he says, Hey, is God a spirit or is God a being? And I went, Well, he's both. And he goes, prove it. Well, uh, okay, you know, and, and I tried to prove it. And every time I would reference a scripture verse, he'd throw another one at me and another one at me. And he basically boxed me into a corner to where I didn't want to talk to him anymore. I mean, I just felt like the dumbest guy on the, on the earth. I could not at all describe what I believed. You ever been in that situation? You just, I believe this thing and there's no way that I can tell you because... I don't even understand it. Ever been there? What I want us to do is to take these next four weeks and look at who Jesus is. And I want to be able to get some answers to some of those kinds of questions. The types of questions that plague us. The type of questions that that even in our own heart we have. Is this real? Is this true? How do I understand this? Because I want to understand it so that I can do two things. So that I can worship God, but I also can talk about God. And I don't have to be afraid to talk about God. And so we're going to look at that. Today, in a few moments, we're going to look at John chapter 1. And when we look at John chapter 1, we are going to look at the person of Emmanuel, the one who came. We're going to look at the actual nature of Jesus Christ. We're going to go through and examine five elements of the nature of Jesus Christ this morning. And when we look at those five elements of the nature of Jesus Christ, I want it to deepen our worship, but also profoundly impact our witness in the world. So in a few moments, we're going to jump into John chapter 1, and we're going to examine these five things. And like I said, we're going to be singing throughout this and engaging throughout this. And so so what I want to do now is have you all stand And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond to the glory of Jesus, to Him being our hope. We're going to respond in singing, and then I'll come back up again and share some more, and we'll respond again. But just join me as I pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus. I thank You for who He is. I thank You that He's our hope. I thank You that He's come into the world to resolve the issues that we have, the spiritual issues that plague us, the internal issues crises that plague us, the external ones, the conflicts with people, the political conflicts in the world. I thank you that Jesus resolves these things. He's our hope. We can trust in him. Lord, 
May we see that today. May we reflect on that today. May we be established in that today so that our worship of you would be profound and our witness would be deep. And I thank you, God, that we can just have this moment to reflect today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. As I said a moment ago, we're looking at John chapter 1 this morning, looking at the person, the incarnation, and there are really five things that John outlines in the first five verses of John chapter 1 about the nature of Jesus Christ. And he gets into the depth of this, and we're going to unpack them here this morning. And I believe that as we do, we do jump into this, that one of the things that will happen is that if you can really stop and and engage the, the profundity of the truths that are here, it begins to start answering some of the deep longings of the human heart as we just sung. The profound issues of the age, we can actually begin to see how Jesus resolves it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study all five of these things. I'm just going to unpack them for you. Then at the end, I'll package them together and talk about four great issues that go on, four great things in the world, four, four great topics that are difficult for us to talk about. And I'm going to show you how this passage resolves and helps us talk about these four great issues. I'm not going to tell you what the four are now, but uh, because I want us just to focus on the passage. First thing that we see in this passage Let me read it to you, the first five verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a great, great prologue. What a great introductory statement about Jesus. It's powerful. Look here. The very first thing he says about Jesus. Very first thing. He says that Jesus is eternal. That's our first great truth about Jesus that you need to know. Jesus is eternal. Notice, in the beginning was the Word. Very powerful statement. Whenever you see in the beginning, right, you see it in Genesis chapter 1 as well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that particular statement means that before there was anything, this is what was. That's the idea behind it. Before there was anything, this is what was. So in the beginning, before everything started, God said, let's start everything. That's Genesis 1.1. Now we see that in the beginning was the Word. Before there was anything, there was this thing, the Word. Now, in order to not get confused, so that I can say, I want to define what the word word means, right? I don't want to put the word word together like that and throw you off. So, so I'm going to use the Greek word logos, because that's the word that's there. So the word logos, that's the Greek word for word. He's saying this thing, the logos, existed before there was anything. Now, at face value, you say, that makes no sense, right? How can a word, what does it mean the word existed before there was anything? Well, what John is doing is he's using a very profound concept. 
the concept of what's called the Logos. It's a concept that both Greeks and Jews would have understood. And I want to explain it to you from the, both the Jewish and the Greek end so that you can understand the point that he's making here. The idea of the Logos is a theological term to a Jewish person. It's a theological term, and it's this. The Jews believed, and this is true. I'm not saying that, that they believe it and they shouldn't believe it. This is true. The Jews understood that when God spoke, that his actual words had creative power to them. So, and the where they get this from is in, 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 in Genesis 1, when it says, and let there be light. We've talked about this in other sermons, I believe. When it says, let there be light, our English translation says, and there was light. If you were to really break it down in the Hebrew, it actually says, let there be light, and then light. And the picture that's, that's coming out is he's saying that, that when God spoke the word light, light came into existence. So, so the idea is this. If God says cow, a cow shows up. That's the idea behind it. Very simple. He's creative. His words are creative. And so the idea of the Logos is this, that, that God is so powerful that His words actually produce the very thing that they say. So if He says light, there's light. If He says dirt, there's dirt. If He says earth, there's earth. It's the creative power of God. So to a Jew, he would read this and he would say, in the beginning was the power of God. And everyone would say, yeah, amen. That's exactly right. Now to a Greek, made a little different understanding of this concept. The Greeks saw this slightly different because they saw this in, in a way in which um, uh, that, uh, that, well, let me kind of back up here because I got ahead of myself in my head there. So much I want to say, I'm getting excited about it. The Greeks understood this. They had a polytheistic worldview. They had an idea that there were many gods. As a result of a polytheistic worldview, uh, and you have so many different gods, you also have so many different worldviews that run the planet. If you've ever read Greek mythology, one thing you notice in Greek mythology is that gods are always fighting each other. Always fighting for power. Always fighting for authority. And in their worldview, there were a variety of different ways that you could approach the world, and so people had conflict. I follow this god, and he tells me to do this. Well, I follow this god, and he tells me to do this. And so it seems pretty chaotic. And there was a Greek philosopher many, many, many centuries ago who said, well, actually, yes, it is true. All of these gods are fighting. But actually, there is a divine principle that holds it all together. And the goal of philosophy is to achieve the understanding of this divine principle. What do you think they call the divine principle? The logos. The word. So the idea is that you have this divine principle at work. And this divine principle is the thing that holds all the worldviews and all the ideas of the world and it encompasses them all together. And, and the goal is to understand that worldview. The goal is to understand that worldview. So both Greeks and Jews would have understood that John is saying before everything existed, there was the Word. There was this logos. The Jews would have understand it, understood it as the speaking element of God. Just a little cross-reference of that. Again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is actually saying the same exact thing, by the way. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke 
to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. It's the exact same thing he's saying. He's, he's the one who speaks. He's the logos of God. And he's so brilliant. Notice he created the world. He's the radiance. He's the glory of God. He's the representative of his nature. You know, he saves us, right? All these things that Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 teaches. I think this is what's here. That's how a Jew would have understood this. Or at least the idea of the Logos, not necessarily Jesus. And the Greeks would have understood it as there was a grand idea that holds all the ideas of the world together. Now, in both cases, what John is saying is this Logos, this principle existed before creation. That's what in the beginning always means. Before anything was made, this is what was. It's eternal. Okay? Now, there's another thing that's said. Okay, so that's the first one. Because as we're, we know from this passage, he's talking about Jesus. So he's saying Jesus is eternal. The second thing he's going to say is he's unfolding this because he's eventually going to tie all these things to Jesus. Is he's going to say he's also not only eternal, but he's distinct. He's distinct. Because notice what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay. Now, so far, no Jew and no Greek is about ready to kill John at these first two statements. Other than this one would get people's attention. And I want to tell you why we get people's attention. There's two words for the word with. Okay, so we've got to get a little grammar here. I'm sorry, a little wordy. That was a, that was a pun, by the way, a little wordy. So, okay, just making sure you're still awake. Okay. Um, there's, two, there's two ideas behind the word with. The first is, is, just means that something is connected or with something else. So let me give you an example of it. It's a very light way of using the word with. And I would say this way. Before I got married, I lived with five roommates. I lived with five roommates. Okay? That's what the word that's one version of the word with. There's another version of the word with that means together with somebody, in a relationship with somebody. So I could say, before I got married, I lived with five roommates. After I got married, I lived with Heather. Now my living with Heather is completely different than the living with my five roommates. So there's two different words in the Greek to denote what kind of with you're talking about. One is the word meta, which means I lived with five roommates. The other is the word pros, P-R-O-S, which means I live with someone, in relationship with someone. So here's what he's saying. In the beginning was this divine logos. But this, I'll give you the, the less than paraphrase, and this logos was in a relationship with God. That's the with that it's talking about. There was an intimacy that was there. There was an intimacy in which these two were operating as one. There was a union between the two. It's a powerful union. Throughout the Gospel of John, if you study the Gospel of John, that union shows up over and over and over again. Let me just show you one place where it shows up. John 17, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is praying before He goes to the cross, and He says, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. 
Oh, this thing that we had together. I I brought your glory to the world and now allow your glory to fall on me because we had this union of glory together. You know, before there was creation in the beginning, I was with you and we shared this glory. That's the idea. So what John is saying is, I want you to understand something about Jesus. I want you to understand that, that He is the Word. He's the divine logos. He's the divine idea. He's the thing that holds all things together. He's the one that, that is the very power of God. And He was also in a relationship with God as a distinct member. Jesus wasn't just some kind of uh, manifestation of God. He Himself is God. He Himself is distinct, but yet in a relationship with God. Very powerful statement. So he's saying, okay, he's eternal. He's distinct from God in a very distinctive relationship. But there's also a third thing that he is. He's also God himself. Notice what he says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Powerful statement. Always existed in relationship with the Father, but He's also God. That's who He is. All that God is, is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus reveals God perfectly. This is why when the disciples are like, hey, show us the Father in John 14, and He says, hey, you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I'm God. I am God. I'm not just a, a representative of God. I am God Himself. By the way, just a little side note, this is what blasphemy actually is. Blasphemy is when you are presented with the claims of Jesus, you see Him for all who He is, and then you say, that's the devil. You deny His nature. That's blasphemy. That's what the, many of the religious leaders did. They, they, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the teachings, they had... All of their traditions had everything in front of them. Then they had Jesus come, fulfill everything the Bible said, and they said, that guy is the devil. When you take the very nature of God and you assign to it the very essence of evil, that's blasphemy. That's the real heart of blasphemy. Blasphemy isn't just questioning whether God exists. Blasphemy is when you say, I see everything that is there in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think it is evil. There's no redemption after that, right? You've walked away from your redemption. You've said, I don't want it. I've assigned it. It's not struggling. Some people say, did I blaspheme because I struggle? Am I blaspheming because I'm doubting? No, blasphemy isn't struggling. It isn't doubting. It's when you see the claims of Jesus and you assign to it the very essence of evil. Because the Word was God Himself. And this is what he's saying. He's making this clear. This is what Emmanuel means in Isaiah 7.14. God with us. He's literally come. Notice, he's going to sum it all up in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Now it's clear that John, as if you were reading this, we know because we've read through this that he's talking about Jesus. But he's unfolding this and he's trying to say this very thing, this very power, this very source that holds all things together is part of the Godhead. And so what John is doing is he's saying, listen, when you look at this Logos, 
you're, you're seeing the very power of God. You're seeing the very creator of the world. You're looking at the source that holds all things together. You are looking at God himself. Well, that's the first three things that he says about Jesus. He's eternal, he's distinct, and he's God. These are three powerful points. What I want us to do now is just take a moment and reflect on that. To think about the, the weightiness of who Jesus is. To think about the weightiness of who Jesus is in light of how simple we sometimes treat Jesus. How we ignore His power. How we will turn to lesser powers how we'll turn to lesser ideas, how it's easier to turn to someone else or a, you know, a book written by a man than, than it is to actually say, Jesus, give me your wisdom. Jesus, I trust in your power. How much we trust in ourselves when we're not eternal. We haven't existed before the world began. We don't hold all things together. We're not it. There's still two more things that John says about Jesus. Not only is He eternal and distinct, and not only is He God Himself, He also says that Jesus is the Creator. Creator. Notice what He says. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Because He's the Word of God, if God is going to speak things into existence, and if He is that very power, that part of God that brings things into existence, He's the actual agent of creation itself. When God says, I'm going to want to create a planet, Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll create it. And notice how He describes this. He wants to make sure you get it. And I'll tell you why. But first of all, just notice how powerful this is. He states it from both the negative and the positive. Right? First, the positive. All things were made through Him. Everything you see was made through Him. It's a simple reality. I mean, sometimes you maybe you go to a big city and you, and you see, you go down downtown Chicago and you see all the skyscrapers and say, wow, we've, we've really lost nature. Right? You could see that and you say, boy, what would this have been like in 1800s, you know, before all the big buildings and the cement? But the reality is that I look at it and I don't necessarily say, see the loss of nature. What I see is what nature is capable of creating itself. You see, because God, Jesus, made everything. And even the things that we make came from Him. This was His dirt. This was His metal. These were, were all of His physics that He put into this planet everything so that whatever we have came from him when he made this planet he made it with laws of physics so that airplanes can fly he made it so that metal could be melted and formed and molded so that you can actually build a building so tall that you don't have to worry about it falling over he created all kinds of things in this planet and everything that you see came from him i don't go downtown and see all the man-made structures in chicago i go downtown and i see this is what Jesus factored into creation when he made it so that we could do this and manipulate his dirt and his metal and his stones and his rocks to create this. I see Jesus there. This is what he made. Everything came through him. 
And then he says, there wasn't anything that came into being that he didn't make. Why is he telling us this? Because he does not want you, does not want you in any sense to feel that Jesus is disconnected from anything. There isn't one place in the world that you could walk where Jesus isn't. There isn't one place that he hasn't touched. There isn't one element of this world that he is not present. This is his creation. When God spoke these words into existence, it was actually Jesus that was doing this. He is the Logos of God. He is everywhere. And everywhere you go, wherever you look, from the steel beams of this building to whatever those pipes are made out of up there, fabric, all of that that's up there, all around us, isn't just man-made stuff and we say, God made the mountains, but man made this building. God made everything such a way that when Jesus fashioned it in, that we could figure out how, how to manipulate creation to have what you have around us today. The wisdom of Jesus is seen everywhere. Everywhere. I remember I was on an airplane one time, and I was sitting next to this woman who was very afraid to fly. And, uh, and we hit some turbulence, just a little light turbulence. And she was very, very scared, right? Grabbing onto the seats, you know. And, uh, and so she said, are you afraid? I said, no, I'm not afraid, you know, of that little bump. And uh, she said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And she says, oh, that's probably why you're not afraid, right? You're not, and I said, no, that's true. But I said, let's just think about it this way. Jesus made this whole planet and designed it in such a way so, so airplanes can fly. Like it's the way he factored this world so that this could happen. It's his world. He's everywhere. Let's not draw lines in creation between man-made and God-made. It's all there. It's all there. So he's saying, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is distinct. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. This leads us to the last description. Jesus is the source of of all things. He's the source of all things. Notice what it says. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what He does is He says, okay, first of all, I want to tell you, Jesus is this divine, eternally existed being who's the divine source of truth. He's the, 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 the one who creates everything, and He existed, and He's God Himself, and He created this world But not only that, John says, but in Jesus himself, in this Logos, were two things, life and light. Two very profound principles. The word life here isn't just life like breathing life. It's a deeper form of life. It it means existence itself. Sometimes you can have a crisis take over your life to such a degree that you're breathing, your heart is beating, but you don't feel alive. You feel dead. He's saying Jesus is the source of the life that can lift you from that deadness and give you life. He's the source of it. He's the source of life. He's also the source of light itself, meaning truth. In John, light always means truth. He can show you the way. When the world doesn't make sense and when it seems like everything is going weird and crazy, 
suffering has come upon us and pain has come upon us and suddenly you're at this moment where you can't make sense of it all. What he's saying is, is that Jesus is the one that not only can breathe life into you, but can show you the way. And some might say, well, do you understand? This is a tough world. The older you get, the more you realize it's a tough world, right? The word pain and suffering means a different thing to a 50-year-old than it does to some who are 20. Some have suffered at 20. But, but I mean, you know, as the world goes on, you, you define it differently. And you might say, the world can overcome it. And the world can take the life out of you. But notice how John sums this up when he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sin and evil cannot actually extinguish, extinguish the light and the life that is in Jesus. When he came into this world, Satan could not shut the light off. Overpower literally means to, 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 to blow it out. He can't. He can't do it. But then how does this person have it? I mean, because sometimes you can feel like the light can be blown out. Sometimes you feel like the, you, know, you can be at the end of yourself. Seventy times in the Gospel of John, we are told the solution to that problem is to cry out and say, Jesus, I trust you, I believe you, I will cling to you. Seventy times you're told that in the Gospel of John. He is the source of life and light. TV's not the source of it. Alcohol's not the source of it. Drugs isn't the source of it. Having me time is not the source of it. The source of it is Jesus. He is life and light. And the deception comes in to say, I'm going to pull away from Jesus when the problems come. I'm going to pull away. I'm not going to pour my life into Jesus. I can't trust Him. I can't hold on to Him. I, I, I don't want to be around Him. And John says, no, don't do that. He is your life and He is your truth. The darkness cannot extinguish it. Cannot overcome it. So in these first five verses, we have the deity of Christ explained to us. He's eternal. He's distinct. He's God. He's creator. And he's the source of truth in life. This is what it means to have Jesus in this world. This is what's coming. This is who's here. This is who we cling to. Now, how does that relate to life? How does that relate to conversations you might have? How does that relate to, to situations you might face in this world? I told you at the beginning there were going to be four things that I was going to reference that you can take these truths and apply them to you. And so I want to deal with these four things right now. I want to, I want to put them out here for you to think about. The first one is this. It deals actually with the doctrine of the Trinity. Ever been in one of those conversations where you're trying to explain the Trinity to someone? You know, those don't last long, right? You try to disengage from those quickly. Those are tough conversations. Yet this is really setting the table for that doctrine. It's setting the table, right? The Spirit isn't mentioned here. But at least now we suddenly have a distinct being. We have, we have God existing in, 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 as God and Logos. What in the world does this mean? Is this contradictory? Does this fight against each other? And then when you add the spirit component in there, Father, Son, Spirit, what does this mean? Well, I want to just tell you two things. First of all, I want to tell you, just explain to you why it's not contradictory. But second, I want to explain to you why it's here and how it actually helps. 
and how it actually will help you in this world when you want to talk about Jesus. First of all, it's not contradictory. Why? Because we're not saying that there's one God existing in three persons and one person, right? That would be contradictory. You can't be three persons and one person. That's contradictory. What the doctrine is saying, what this teaching is saying, is that there's one God existing in three persons. So three persons, one essence. That is not contradictory. It's just really deep. But it's not contradictory. Three persons, one essence. For all you math geeks out there, this only applies to the math geeks. Steve, this is for you. Okay. Only applies to the math geeks. Here we go. It's one to the third power. One times one times one is one. It's not one plus one plus one equals one. That would be wrong. Okay? That's as far as I go with my math. Okay? <laughs> to the math geeks, you went, amen, hallelujah, I get the Trinity now. It's one to the third power. If you're not a math geek, don't even write that down. Okay? It's not going to apply to you. But here's what it's saying. It's saying that somehow this one God can exist in three persons, and this three persons can have one essence. Now, why that way? How does that help us? Well, I want to explain to you how that might help us. Because in the very nature of God, the very relationship between God the Father and God the Son, we learn something that we all want to know about in this world. We learn about love. Love is defined in this relationship right here. The entire world... It's on a quest to understand love, some form of love. What does it mean? The 1960s, right? That was like defined the 1960s. Love. All these bands writing about love. And then they all got high and drunk and broke up. Their bands. They, they, they couldn't do it. They could write songs about love, but they couldn't love each other. Right? No one can find love. Because love, first and foremost, exists within God. And until we look at his definition of love, we cannot understand human love. And so John tells us, listen, the word was with God. There was a relationship that existed there. And what I learn when I look at the relationship between the Father and the Son is I begin to understand love. And that's what our world needs. We don't need more love songs. We don't need more love poets. We need to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. And if you want to understand that relationship, read the Gospel of John. That is where love is unfolded. Not just the love between humans, the love between the Father and the Son. And then that love becomes the love that should drive and define us. Why am I glad that there's a father and a son and a spirit? Why am I glad that there's this very complex relationship that's hard to... Because it explains to me love. And if I want to talk to people about love, if I want to talk to them about relationships, I want to point to people to the relationship between the father and the son. And to see that kind of relationship. That kind of love in which the father shares all of his glory with the son. And that kind of love in which the son says, I'm willing to give up everything for you. I'm willing to sacrifice everything I have for you. I'm willing to be called the devil even though I'm God just to carry out your purposes. That's how much I love you. There is love all within that. Second thing that we can see 
Not only do we see this love in the Trinity, but we also get an understanding of what authority really looks like. Jesus is the creator of the whole world. The whole world belongs to him. He rules it. He runs it. And one of the things that you see when you study the life of Jesus is you see times when he comes in with force. You see times when he comes in with mercy. You see times when he comes in with patience. You see times when he acts right then and there. You get a chance to see in Jesus how he rules and runs this world. You see, we shouldn't necessarily be looking for the next ism to run the world, right? right? Whatever ism you want to pick that's run the 20th century, right? You, you could have, you know, uh, uh, you know, communism, socialism, whatever you want to pick. Any ism. And say, there's the answer. No. The answer is Jesus. He is the divine authority. He created this world. He sustains this world. He holds it all together. And when we see how he interacts this world, we see times of when justice should be administered with mercy. We see times when justice should be administered with force. We see times when patience should be given. We see times when action should be happening right now. We see it all in Jesus. Our world is going through all kinds of chaos, and we've got turmoil in cities in our own country right now, and people upset with police officers and governors and decisions. And what what does the world need to see? The world needs to see how Jesus rules this planet. We can talk about Jesus because he created the world. Third thing, third great big idea, truth. Truth is the great big idea. What is the right way? How do we understand this world? What is the right path? How should I act? What should I do? Right? All the questions that come up in Jesus is the very wisdom of God. And when we begin to have his words take over our thought process, we begin to walk in the truth. Whatever crisis you're going to face at 2.30 this afternoon, whatever's going to happen in your life, that was not a prophetic moment, by the way, okay? whatever's going to happen in your life today, tomorrow, our first response would be, Jesus, what is your wisdom here now? I need it. Not, how do I defend myself? How do I get what I want? How do I serve myself? How do I express myself? How do I whatever myself? No, Jesus, what do you want from me? You want death now? You want life now? Do you want me to act? Do you want me to keep my mouth shut? You tell me I need your wisdom. I'm not going to act. God, I'm going to trust right now. Your wisdom would overrun my mind. I'm going to trust what I've learned from your word and let it overtake me and I will respond with truth. How about, not just a crisis, but how about seeking your way in this world? Maybe you feel as if you've lost your way. You feel as if, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know why I'm breathing. We can start to say, okay, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know what you're doing in this world. I want to let, let your word define my way so that I would know where to walk. So that you would light my paths, as the Proverbs say. And finally... Right? Not only do we see kind of love in the Trinity and authority and truth, finally we see salvation. The hope for when we die. The hope that we can be restored. That whatever the things we're afraid of or ashamed of, Jesus restores them all. Because one of the great things about Him coming into this world is that He came in this world to save sinners. That's what He came to do.
So, meditating on the nature of Jesus gives us four great things to talk about. Love, authority, truth, and salvation. Why don't you take a moment? The musicians are going to come and they're going to play. And I just want to give you a moment while they're playing just to reflect on this. Maybe reflect upon areas in your own life where Jesus has really played a minor part and where you're just kind of living in your own energy, on your own strength, in your own wisdom. And then just take a moment and reflect upon all these truths. Maybe look back at the passage and just let, let your mind be engulfed with what the text says. And then just pray that Jesus would become a deeper part of your thought process every moment. So just bow your head. I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done, the musicians are going to play for a while, and then we'll, we'll gather to sing. But just join me in prayer. Father, thank you now that we can be in your word. We can see Jesus. Father, may we see him now. May his glory permeate every part of our thought and life. Christ's name. Thank you.